Welcome to the Practicing Clinicians Exchange podcast, six episode series, Emergency Use Authorization, COVID-19. This is podcast number two, part one of what's available inpatient. I'm your host, John Hardesty. I'm a physician assistant with Colorado Springs Pulmonary Consultants. In this episode, we'll be talking about convalescent plasma treatment with remdesivir, and we'll discuss the associated studies, safety, and adverse events. With me today is Dr. Paul Awater, Professor of Medicine and Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. This program is provided by Practicing Clinicians Exchange for 0.25 ANCC and AAPA credits. The program is supported by an educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. To receive credit for this program, go to pce.is forward slash COV19. Our learning objective is that at the conclusion of this podcast, you, the learner, will be able to summarize the efficacy and safety evidence for inpatient COVID-19 therapies with an EUA. Paul, thanks for joining us again. And I guess we should start off by uh, having a a discussion of convalescent plasma and the efficacy and when to administer and some of the discussion of toxicities and what to expect. I think uh, a lot of us who have been practicing through this, I'm in the ICU, um, a lot of us have seen the use of convalescent plasma wane as more studies have come out, but we were all very excited of it. And I even have friends who became infected with COVID-19 and had to donate their convalescent plasma um, as part of just the efforts to uh, respond to COVID-19. But if you could uh, talk a little bit about convalescent plasma, where we've been and where we're going with it. John, delighted to join. And I think convalescent plasma has been one of the uh, potential interventions for COVID-19 that's probably stimulated some of the most passionate debates so far, mainly because we haven't yet had Uh, a definitive clinical trial to really outline its role. Now, to step back for just a second, uh, to remind everyone, the COVID-19 illness, if you're ill enough to be hospitalized, there's sort of what we often call the early phase, where you have a very uh, high amount of viral replication that's often peaks just at the first day or two of symptoms, Uh, but is still quite prominent and declines around day seven when uh, the body's own antibody responses tend to uh, be provoked and start trying to clear virus, assuming you're not severely immune suppressed. Uh, That second week, often day seven to 14, is where some people have this hyperinflammatory phase that causes a lot of inflammation and lands people in the ICU into your unit um, where uh, they may have Uh, you know, uh, significant hypoxemia requiring intubation or even progress to ARDS. So I think the concept between uh, uh, understanding how convalescent plasma works, we know historically antibody-based therapies bind to pathogens and clear it, uh, you have to use it early. And that's why I think of it as an antiviral. But as I mentioned, the the data has not been overwhelming yet. And of course, you already mentioned that early on, uh, it was widely used because uh, FDA uh, authorized something called expanded access. You might think of it like compassionate use, where they didn't have a lot of data, but 
uh, thought that it was biological plausibility that it would have a role. So, I mean, we were using it uh, clinically at a very different stages of the disease and mostly because there wasn't data to support, you know, when to use it, when not to use it. But um, right now, uh, where are we at with convalescent plasma and when are we exactly supposed to be pulling this tool out of our toolbox? I think it's still not exactly clear, John, which is why there isn't really firm guidance on the subject. I'll I'll give you a little bit of my interpretation of it and, and how I think many of us are using it at Johns Hopkins, for example. Uh, I mentioned the expanded access when uh, a lot of convalescent plasma was used uh, in 2020. And uh, a Joyner and others uh, published a paper in the New England Journal earlier in uh, this year, in January, I believe. And they took a subset of uh, 3,000 patients that had gotten this plasma. And what they found was that um, uh, if patients got it when they were in the ICU, they didn't benefit as much as people that got it earlier when they were just on the floor with less severe illness. They also found that if the plasma didn't have high antibody titers, it didn't work too well. So uh, we do know when people donate plasma, they have variable amounts of antibodies. But although this was not a a prospective trial, this uh, open label observational um, analysis determined that if you got high titer plasma before you were on mechanical ventilation, um, your uh, mortality was reduced by 75%. I think that was that's fairly telling. And of course, that means you're probably getting it in that first week of illness, uh, for example. Uh, there's another trial that's impressed me a lot that was done in Argentina. And um, that trial uh, was done in older people over 65. We already know they're at the high, uh, high risk for progression to severe illness. and But they only could have COVID symptoms for three days, and they were guaranteed to get high titer treatment. And in that uh, trial by Libster in the New England Journal, uh, published in January, you know, they found that the relative risk reduction was nearly 75% lower for progression to severe disease if they got convalescent plasma. Now, a couple of key points here. First, in the United States, convalescent plasma is only authorized under emergency use for inpatients. So you can't use it on an outpatient basis. It's under study for that right now. But it also, I think both of these studies and others have prompted the FDA to now revise the EUA such that only high titer plasma can be given to patients. What I'm hearing is that where we're sitting at right now is that we really want to focus uh, the convalescent plasma on that first week of illness, if we can catch them in that, uh, maybe when they're in the hospital on a nasal cannula or other kind of non-invasive ventilation on the floor. And uh, we're wondering if they're going to transition to the ICU, but that would be the opportunity to possibly use the convalescent plasma. I think you're right, John. We we try to emphasize, and again, this uh, goes back to that joiner data that people try to use it within the first three days of hospitalization or perhaps the first three days of illness, even if someone is admitted that soon after symptoms, uh, so that you're giving it early when these antibodies have a time to react. There is another population that isn't as well studied, and that's the immunosuppressed, people that don't really mount a productive antibody responses, especially, but maybe even T-cell responses. And so that group that could include solid organ transplants, people that have gotten rituximab, people that are on active chemotherapy, 
that's a group of people that we uh, often think of uh, for convalescent plasma, uh, especially in that first week. And, and rarely we'll use it even beyond that if someone has evidence of replicating virus, you know, uh, after the first week. I guess that's, that really kind of spawns the question for me being the in the ICU and we're seeing people after their first week of illness. And sometimes we do have people, often we have people who are immune compromised at baseline. And we are wondering, you know, would throwing convalescent plasma at them help them, you know, as they're struggling through this and we're kind of running out of tools in the ICU to to use? Is there, from your perspective, a benefit to doing that or is it kind of a, a waste of convalescent plasma? I'm not sure it's a waste. I would say it's very much an individualized decision. Uh, I know our infectious disease physicians that um, really focus on these immunosuppressed patients sort of take an individualized approach based on data. I'll give you a quick perspective. You know, if someone's in later phase illness and they're in the ICU, they have terrible infiltrates, they're intubated, but you don't have a great explanation for uh, a reason other than COVID, meaning they, you don't think they have a fungal infection like aspergillus, you don't think they have a secondary pneumonia. And, and that's a group where uh, they could be in their day 15, day 20 of illness, they still have fevers, they probably still have elevated inflammatory markers. But we'll ask our lab to try to get a cycle threshold on the PCR. And if it's a low cycle threshold, which really suggests they're having replicating virus, we might retreat or uh, if they got it the first time or start treatment with remdesivir, and which we'll talk about in a moment, and uh, uh, the antiviral uh, convalescent plasma in effort to try to suppress replicating virus, which could be driving the illness in the immunosuppressed population. Obviously, not a routine patient, <laughs> you know, in these circumstances. Right, right. Uh, pretty specialized, um, but uh, important to point out. Uh, another point to mention, just uh, make sure you know what your blood bank is giving you. Although the FDA has authorized high-dose uh, plasma only for patients, they've given a grace period until June of 2021 because many blood banks have not instituted titering systems yet. So please ask your blood bank if you're getting high titer plasma. If you're not, then it's uncertain what you're getting and maybe 40 to 60% or more of units are not high titer. So you may have to give a second or even a third unit of plasma to know if there is um, enough antibodies to help your patients. And don't forget there are rare, but true uh, side effects of convalescent plasma. They conclude uh, a number of things. I, I don't know what you've uh, generally thought of when you uh, administer plasma in your unit. Right, actually that was, that's great because I was gonna bring that up. You know, we really need to touch on, you know, every drug has an adverse effect and uh, convalescent plasma absolutely does have some as well some of the, um, I guess, toxicities to expect. With us, one of the main things that we worry about is just volume as we're giving fluids and volume to patients. And um, there's always, you know, reactions to the plasma. It's just any blood product that you can get as well that we have to watch for. But I think my biggest concern when I give convalescent plasma is just additional volume to the patient as we're watching their lungs get more opacified on a chest x-ray. Yeah, John, I think you're right. The potential side effects of plasma are rare. Uh, you already mentioned uh, potential allergic reactions or volume overload. There's also trolley, this uh, transfusion-related uh, acute lung injury syndrome, which is very rare, along with the potential for plasma to transmit 
uh, pathogens such as HIV. But again, now you're talking about, you, you know, one in 200,000, one in a million chance. So I, I think the overall view is there. there's always a risk. It's, it's quite small uh, with plasma. So I think there is a role. It's been very hard to show this in clinical trials, John, because a lot of people have stopped using it. But to be honest, it's been hard to design the trial appropriately to get people a high titer unit early. So, so many of the trials that have not shown benefit, people are getting plasma on day nine, for example, or they're getting low titer plasma. So it's been difficult to show uh, the kind of efficacy that would convince people of its role. And, and it sounds like we're not done looking at plasma and the, it still may have a very active role in the treatment of COVID-19, but we're definitely shifting gears on how we use it. But to kind of segue into a more sort of mainstream medication that we've all been using quite a bit. If we could talk a bit about uh, remdesivir, which is um, kind of was exciting earlier on. And uh, <laughs> it looks like we're now seeing some studies that may be uh, sort of dousing my excitement with remdesivir with the solidarity trial. But, you know, remdesivir was first talked about in the ACT-1 trial. And if you could tell us a little bit about that antiviral yeah. So the again, this is the second uh, antiviral we're discussing in this podcast, John. And I agree. Um, you know, people have uh, looked at data and come away with different uh, information. What's important first is this is the only fully FDA approved drug for use. So you can use it however you wish. But what I'll try to do is outline the data that I think best supports its role because it's not an inexpensive product. But as an antiviral, this probably works earlier in illness again. Uh, remember, this was uh, this is an intravenous drug. It's actually a prodrug that needs to be metabolized. It was first purposed for Ebola, but now it has a role here. And you mentioned the ACT-1 trial, and this was you know, a gold standard placebo-controlled trial of over a thousand patients. And it was done early in the pandemic. Uh, and the primary endpoint was time to recovery. And there was a five-day difference. That is, the patients that got remdesivir recovered five days earlier. And I think if you were faced with packed hospitals, getting patients improved and out of the hospital five days earlier um, is quite meaningful. Now, uh, there was a mortality trend uh, of almost uh, 50%. Uh, at day 15 and maybe 25% at day 29, but wasn't statistically significant. This was a thousand patient trial, not really powered to show mortality. You mentioned the solidarity trial, the WHO trial. Now, interestingly, that it was a large trial. It was negative for remdesivir, but it compared four different arms. It was a pragmatic trial. And a lot of the remdesivir use was in Iran, for example. And so there were a lot of different practices. It was not as well controlled. Investigators could switch drugs. So uh, I, I think my view is that the solidarity trial, while interesting and very large and failed to show a mortality benefit, which is what people were hoping for, is not the kind of trial I would say a drug doesn't have its use. And some more recent observational trial, uh, as we've managed people better in the pandemic, you know, people are having shorter illnesses, they're being managed better. A trial by Garibaldi published in JAMA showed a two-day difference in terms of time of improvement in terms of remdesivir use. And that was especially true in a population that had a high degree of people of color. So I think this antiviral definitely has a role. It's earlier in illness. Um, uh, and we know that from this ACT-1 trial, because if you started it when a patient was in the ICU, 
there is very little difference compared to placebo. But the subgroup that drove the biggest change was a group that was requiring oxygen, but not ill enough to land in the ICU. So again, earlier phase of illness, antiviral effect, you're in that first week uh, for most patients. And as I mentioned with convalescent plasma, if you're dealing with immune suppressed patients, I like to combine antivirals, meaning you're going to use plasma and remdesivir together in that situation. And these are the guidance that the NIH uh, COVID-19 panel has endorsed that if you're hospitalized and require supplemental oxygen, but haven't yet proceeded to mechanical ventilation or ECMO, they do recommend remdesivir use. And that's, uh, I just got to say, from the perspective of somebody who's working in the hospital with COVID patients every day, and usually when I'm seeing them, they're beyond that first week, but just to have, you know, some tools to respond to these patients. And remdesivir has um, really been, you know, a, a great tool for us in the ICU as, as well as the floor before they get to the ICU. Now, and we were giving it, you know, later than just the first week. Uh, mostly because we wanted to give them something and in the hopes that it would improve them. So Paul, one of the things that we um, worry about with remdesivir are that there are some side effects and what are, what are some of the issues and side effects that you get asked about mostly regarding that particular medication? Yeah, John. So uh, just to back up briefly in that act one trial, uh, there were uh, very few uh, side effects of serious nature. In fact, overall, um, remdesivir had fewer adverse events than placebo, which meant it sounded like it was trying to temper the illness uh, overall. Uh, there's two that I would mention. First is uh, if someone has more than five times the upper limit of normal of liver function tests, uh, do not administer remdesivir because in that setting, it appears to potentially cause hepatotoxicity. I'd say the much more common question is regarding the FDA labeling that says uh, to uh, uh, consider not infusing the drug if someone has renal dysfunction. And this is based on uh, the carrier, not the drug itself. There's an excipient called cyclodextran. It's precisely the same uh, molecule that's in uh, the antifungal drug voriconazole that we've used intravenously for years. And that same warning is on that drug, but we've given it to patients with renal failure, with with uh, dialysis requirements, and uh, it's given safely. The accumulation does not seem to cause injury. Uh, and especially for a five or 10 day treatment with remdesivir, uh, we uh, say the benefits outweigh any theoretical risks. There's no proven risks. And indeed, a number of papers have come out uh, that have suggested that patients with renal insufficiency do better receiving remdesivir than those that don't when faced with COVID-19 illness. Well, I really appreciate you saying that because that sometimes the uh, clinical pharmacist that rounds with us is the hard stop with giving remdesivir and anyone who has an elevated creatinine or, you know, diminished GFR. And I think that that's something I've actually seen studies on as well, which is that remdesivir is indeed safe to use in acute renal failure and and that the benefit outweighs um, any risk on that. And also great to clarify that if your LFTs are really going up five times normal, that that should be a hard stop for remdesivir. I kind of wanted to hit a few summarizing points for uh, the two items that we discussed, which was convalescent plasma as well as remdesivir. And both of these, it seems that we want to really focus our energies on 
using them in the first week of illness, the first uh, one to two days, one to three days, or even within the first seven days, um, because that's the greatest efficacy for both of these antiviral treatments. And also a clarifying point for all of us working in community hospitals is talk to your pharmacist and talk to your blood bank and determine if you're getting the high titer plasma or what you're actually giving the patient, because you may be giving a low titer plasma and have to give a second dose. Also, the special groups of immunosuppressed uh, patients may benefit from getting it even later than that first week. And as we just said with remdesivir, there's um, some cautionary stuff about, uh, you know, giving it with people with elevated LFTs greater than five times normal, definitely don't use, but we can probably use it in our acute renal failure patients who most of our COVID patients end up with some renal involvement. So again, Paul, thank you so much for um, uh, being with us here today and clarifying everything. Uh, John, thanks so much. I hope uh, it provides some useful information uh, for your patients. Yeah, well, I think we've learned a lot. And uh, everyone, please be sure to tune into the next episode, which is part two of the two episodes on what's available inpatient. We'll try to discuss the efficacy and safety of steroids, tocilizumab, and baricitinab plus remdesivir. And also we'll talk about using COVID-19 in pregnancy. If you haven't already, please be sure to tune in to other episodes of this six-part series at pce.is forward slash COV-19. Also, don't forget to claim your CME slash CE credits at the same web address, pce.is forward slash COV-19. Thanks again for joining us today.